in almost every single project now, we do both organizational research and community or customer research. And we find that the challenges that come up in the organizational research is often also true what's coming up in the community research as well. Like they're very much um, reciprocal of each other. And when you help one, you're helping the other. Hi, and welcome to Greater Than. Here you'll listen to conversations with business leaders on how they build remarkable businesses, putting values to work for their organization and their customers. I'm Lauren Sinreich, a systems thinker and design strategist, principal of Whole Innovation and Design, and host of this podcast. I'm here today with Sarah Judd Welsh, the CEO of Sharehold. It's an innovation agency focused on people-driven change. Thanks for being here today, Sarah. Thank you for having me, Lauren. It's so exciting to have this conversation and to see you launch Whole Design. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. I immediately thought of you and Sharehold when I thought about starting this podcast because clearly the point of much of the work or the, the perspective of much of the work that we do through Whole Innovation and Design is using values as mm-hmm. a lens for innovation. And it's clear that you have seeing the value that community can bring in so many different ways and leverage that as a really powerful lens for for innovation and and change. And uh, I'm excited to talk to you about that more today. Thank you. So why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your path to where you are today and uh, the work you do with Sharehold. Sure. A little bit about me. I'm a community designer and an organizational designer, and I am the CEO of Sharehold's. Um, I've been doing this work for more than a decade. My first company, Loyal, focused specifically on community design and community strategy. And about two years ago, I shifted my focus towards building Sharehold, which is much more focused on innovation and larger systemic change. Uh, Our mission at Sharehold is to change a definition of quote-unquote shareholder to include everyone in an organization's orbit. Uh, We believe that every organization should foster equity and belonging by serving the entire community, which includes customers, employees, community members, the environment, and more. Amazing. So going back to your origins in community, uh, back when you started Loyal, uh, you've been in this community space as a driver for innovation for about 10 years now at this point, and Loyal was one of the first agencies dedicated to community as a lens for innovation. Mm-hmm. What what made you see that 10 years ago, this was the time to be focusing on community and what gap did you see in the market that you felt like you really needed to fill mm-hmm. there and, and why with community? It's a really good question. Um, I think I've always been drawn to community and community-oriented things and paths. Um, when I was young, I thought that I would start a nonprofit. I was really interested in this idea of like serving the community and providing community services. Like I thought that I would run some sort of local-based, uh, community-driven nonprofit. And later, when I went into college, I was like, oh, like I really want to not just uh, put a Band-Aid as, as a solution out there, but I want to actually make fundamental change and no longer require the needs that... Um, many or the needs of the services that many of these nonprofits serve. Not to say that those uh, nonprofits are not valuable or not needed, but I wanted deeper, more systemic change. So I started looking into politics and thought for sure that I would have a career in policy and implementing change where it started in a more systemic, holistic level. 
And then, um, you know, I came up a time to graduate from college and I was like, oh shit, I had student loans uh, and I couldn't afford to work in politics. So I ended up working at Goldman Sachs during the time of the financial crisis. And um, that was very eye-opening. And while I didn't see a place for myself on Wall Street, I did realize that um, I loved business and that I felt that I could have a positive impact through business. And I um, saw the opportunity for businesses to be significantly more people-oriented in developing relationships with their customers. So fast forward to like 2010 to 2012, there was a lot of change happening in the business climate at that time. You know, Facebook was growing rapidly, social media was becoming huge, and suddenly businesses were responsive and accountable to a much wider set of stakeholders that could literally just tweet at them and complain and be like, hey, like your service sucks, or I need X. And it opened up this new dialogue and a power dynamic shift in which suddenly customers were significantly more powerful. And I thought that that in and of itself was a really interesting um, dynamic. During the period of time after which I had left Goldman and before I started Loyal, one of my um, jobs that I had taken was with a nonprofit that uh, it refused to engage with anybody who had not given this nonprofit a donation. And I felt that to be so fundamentally wrong that in order for um, there to be like a, a relationship between an organization and its quote unquote customer that there had to be like a transaction. And I felt that like, Hey, like there's a missed opportunity here. We should be able to provide value that is um, mutual and reciprocal rather than transactional. And I saw this to be true in my work in technology as well. I ended up working with catch a fire and then task before starting loyal. And I really saw the power of bringing people together and also treating people well and solving their problems as like a fundamental purpose of the business. And ultimately where I landed on in there philosophically is that the role of a business in society is to serve people. Therefore you need to be solving the problems of people. And the people who you serve are core stakeholders within your business. And that fundamentally drove what my work is today. Um, and with Loyal, when I was starting Loyal, there really wasn't a lot of comparables out there. There were not a lot of people talking about community. When they did talk about community, it was often in the context of social media. And I think that conversation is still happening today where people think community is simply having you know, an Instagram page or a bunch of Twitter followers or even a Facebook page. Um, I would like to believe that that conversation has become significantly more nuanced, but I know that that nuance of conversation is not necessarily equal across the entire industry. Um, but community is sort of like a coveted thing that brands want now. It has now been proven that when a, when a business has an engaged customer base and a community, it can increase the customer lifetime value, retention, satisfaction, and brand awareness, as well as lower the cost of acquisition. So now like the idea of a super engaged community, true relationship-driven business, it's no longer up for debate. The ROI has been proven, and now we're able to play at a significantly higher level of new value creation. And I can remember when I was moving into this work initially, and this was back in like 2012, people told me that I was nuts. Like, you know, this wasn't a thing. People were not going to pay for it. And that's absolutely not true. If anything, this work is more important than ever and businesses know the value of it. In fact, there was an HBR article maybe a couple of years ago that proved that the value of a brand is now not as valuable as the customer relationships of a company. 
And that's uh, true when you're acquiring a new business, the value of your customer relationships is significantly stronger now than the value of the brand of a company. So the people have become and replaced the brand in some ways. Um, so now it's all about creating a new set of competencies and capabilities in value systems that allow businesses to serve their customers and their stakeholders better and well and mm. to collaborate with them together. But you've also had a similar community awakening as well. Like what, what do you see there? You know, over the years, I think it was a lot more token engagement with community. And yeah. I think now that they're uh, developed over the years, more robust methods for engaging and listening to mm-hmm. community. Uh, and some companies are much better at more than just engaging, listening to, but actually incorporating and bringing them into the process and things. I think that there has been a lot more potential that's been identified in community being a source of, of innovation, of ideas yes. moving forward. Uh, it makes keeps you relevant. Uh, you know, this is, gone are the days that you're in a room and you think you see them in the market a gap and you have an idea. It's uh, you know, time and time again, there's plenty of companies that have li- launched something without doing the proper research and mm-hmm. really lost a lot of money on it. So I think, I think you know, to your point is, uh, it's clear now that there is a lot more evidence to uh, invest in community, a lot more mm-hmm. evidence of the, the value of investing in community. Uh, but I think also it's not consistent across the board. And I think yeah. that different ways of engaging community um, yield different results. Um, and so, you know, kind of like from the trajectory of being social, like social media driven definition of community versus uh, versus a more complex definition of community that exists today that maybe doesn't have a, a con- consistent definition. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess that's an interesting point. I'd love to hear from you about, about <laughs> How that. How do we it's define like, community? And how, how does that differ from from organization to organization? And, and do you see any uh, any trends or themes across why some why one organization might define it one way versus another? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and I think it's it's very a worthwhile point to address as well. Um, at Sharehold, we define community as a group of people which can exist anywhere. It is platform agnostic. It could be. It could be on a social media page. It could be on a digital platform. It could be in your inbox. It could also be inside of a classroom, in a campus, a neighborhood. It could be online or offline. It is a group of people that is channel agnostic and that has a mutual shared sense of identity and investment in each other. And they give to each other without the expectation of immediate return. They frequently have a shared set of norms and values, um, like in a way of interacting with each other. However, People use the word community in so many varied ways that it has often become or frequently has become a somewhat meaningless word. When we were um, in the process of creating Sharehold and naming Sharehold, we worked with a naming consultant who like looked at a whole bunch of different websites and how they were using the word community. And ultimately, we determined that uh, the word community is somewhat meaningless in today's business landscape mm. and that <laughs> it was an impossible word to use and to target ourselves and market ourselves well. And it wasn't like a differentiated um, value proposition because the word is used so differently from context to context. Um, So we had to learn how to talk about ourselves a little bit differently. Yeah, I love that. I mean, 
when you quoted that market research that the word community doesn't really mean anything anymore. It's just like my head in my head. I'm just like, why do we keep doing this to ourselves? Yeah. We just like beat the life out of phrases and they don't mean anything anymore. Yeah. It just becomes a buzzword and it's really frustrating. It's like, do we need to define a new word to describe what we originally meant by community? I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, but I think it's worthwhile to have a much more nuanced conversation about what a community means. It kind of actually makes me think about like the Inuit, they have like 28 words for, for snow. Yes. Um, and instead of being annoyed about how we just beat the life out of, out of a phrase, it's like, maybe we can recognize that this is a much more complex concept. More yeah, that we need to really pay homage to with more accurate and uh, more accurate and more nuanced language. So I, I don't love know. that. Yeah, yeah, maybe. And so maybe Sharehold needs to start coming up with terms for <laughs> different types of community. I don't know. I could see us doing that. <laughs> One thing he said kind of caught my attention is this idea of shared investment without immediate returns. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually had a conversation uh, on this podcast with somebody recently about KPIs and company goals and how they get mm-hmm. there and where KPIs are, how KPIs help or, or are may, maybe not as effective and getting us there. And I think there's, it's, it's interesting because um, a lot of goals, regardless, whether it's community or elsewhere, a lot of goals don't have immediate returns mm-hmm. and you need to be able to you need to be able to have some sort of faith in the work that you're doing is going in the direction you want to. And KPIs is like the best way that we know how to do that. So in the world of innovation and design in the community and sharehold space, how are you guys valuing, uh, tracking, understanding the progress of the work you're doing as you, Mm -hmm. uh, as you engage in this, uh, with communities? I mean, that's a really good question. We've spent a lot of time thinking about how to measure the success of our work. And we frequently do use KPIs and metrics when we're measuring our success. I think what it all hinges on is having a really clear understanding of why you're doing what you're doing. Uh, Typically, when we're working with an organization, we're conducting research to understand what the organization needs and then also what the community or the customers need. And we really focus our strategy on where those two circles intersect. Like you can imagine this as a Venn diagram where there's like community and customer needs and then organizational business needs. And where they intersect is really where you're focusing your strategy going forward. And that's true whether it's like a community strategy for like a very specific program or like your business strategy at large. You really need to make sure that you're aligning those two interests. And when you are measuring the success of a community, you're ultimately pointing towards like that larger overarching business strategy. How does this specific activity contribute towards reaching those business goals? And that might not always be something like five leads generated. It might be something like um, we hosted five conferences and um, the conference attendees rated this as like a 10 out of 10. And Further on, we three months later learned that they felt more confident in X, uh, and that can be a metric of success. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways that we think about metrics at Sharehold, and we are actively looking for new ways to measure the success. The, the more traditional ways are simple, like ROI, like 
the uh, rate of return on a specific programmatic investment. Like it's a pure cost analysis. I think that's probably one of the most cut and dry, but also most boring and uncreative ways to measure the success of community. (laughs) There's a net promoter score, which is commonly used. I find the net promoter score to be insufficient for measuring community. And there's a huge uh, body of thought around the um, insufficiency of NPS scores though it is probably one of the most frequently ways that community success is measured. What's interesting is that in Sherhold's work with the wing in 2018, we proved that NPS score was not sufficient in measuring community. We were testing out different community metrics at that time and directly trying to measure the value of community relationships within the wing. If you're not familiar with the wing, it's an all women's co-working space and a network of locations around the country and actually now around the world. They have about 11 locations now looking to expand to, I think, about 20 by the end of this year. TBD based on COVID, but that's the latest I've heard. (laughs) (laughs) And we learned in our work with them that um, when you're trying to measure the relationships, like the strength of um, community intimacy, it does not align with a net promoter score. A net promoter score simply measures satisfaction with a product. It doesn't really measure satisfaction with like the people that you are sharing space with and the way in which you feel that you belong to that space. So based yeah. on that, um, that project, we began researching what does it look like to measure belonging? And now currently Sharehold is actively researching and conducting a line of research into strengthening that measurement of belonging. We've, there are quite a few platforms out there and a few different resources that are measuring belonging, but we find them to be either too arduous, like they're very academic and challenging to implement, or simply insufficient. And I think there's also larger um, other ways to measure community success as well. It's like, what are the community outcomes? Do the people who participate in this community have an outcome that is um, outside of our business success, but still valuable? Like, for example, Is this career-focused community helping people increase their income or land a new job? Uh, Those are fantastic metrics of success as well. So it's really about understanding what is it that this community is meant to accomplish in the context of the larger uh, business, or maybe it's a company that is entirely a community-driven company. In that case, you're talking about something else. Uh, But it's like really about understanding what is a larger strategy here, and then how do you measure the success of that strategy? I love that concept of if you are a community-centered company, such as a co-working space or something, that Mm -hmm. uh, your customers and your community members' goals can actually be a KPI for you. Yes, 100%. And they should be because ultimately as a business, you're meant to be serving the people who are buying your products and whatever you can do to help them. That's your business. Yeah, I mean, I can see that applying in the product world too. It's a lot harder mm-hmm. to follow up and measure, but uh, that's also one thing. Is and, and as you were explaining your your work with the wing and concepts around measuring community, was this you know just the commitment to constant observation and mm-hmm. research around this. And so I'm curious to hear a little bit about in the companies that you've worked with, it's probably changed over the years as there's much more clear data that makes the case for it. But uh, it's really hard to get a CEO or company leadership to really invest and be patient with the process that is 
is pretty resource and time intensive, but at the end of the day, it's what fuels people buying your product and your service, right? Yeah. So it's it's like how tell me a little bit about your process and or your experience and working with CEOs and whether you've just been lucky to come across companies that are aligned and get it or how you've kind of navigated that with some that might have needed a little bit of guidance or educating. Yeah. Um, Lauren, earlier or several times in our conversation, you've mentioned the like capacity to listen to customers. And I think that's probably one of the most fundamental skills that a company can develop in 2020 for a competitive advantage. Uh, not enough companies are doing enough to listen to their customers and to their community and to foster their own practice of research. And I think that it is a fundamental competency in 2020. Uh, we do a lot of research at Sharehold. I would say it's probably about 50% of our work at this point. Um, and it can be a challenge to persuade companies to do research, uh, particularly in this like tech-driven startup culture. There's this idea that you should be able to like A-B test your way to success or um, you know, ship a quick and dirty MVP and see how it lands. But really, when you're doing an A-B test or like a really quick um, a sprint where you're just shipping and seeing how people respond, you're missing out on the larger opportunity to see the entire landscape. You're missing out on the, uh, the opportunities that whatever it is you're A-B testing or whatever it is that you've immediately shipped, like you're missing out on what that does not at all address. Like you're on a local, you're maximizing a local maxim rather than finding what is the actual maxim of maxims. There could be a much larger mountain just a mile away that you can't even yet see because you're on this hill and you're, this hill is the highest point, but you don't have any visibility as to the other mountains that are around you. And I think that's really what design research helps you do is it helps you to see all the mountains that are around you and then find the largest one. Or maybe there's a reason why you're going after the smaller one. I'm not sure. Probably your research would uh, reveal that, but it really helps you to see the larger landscape and go after the greatest opportunities. Typically, yeah. our um, clients are coming to us during a time of change. Either they are launching something new, they're undergoing a major organizational transformation, perhaps they launched something and it's failed. Or maybe it's like they know that they need to change, but they don't know how or uh, in what way they need to change. And they're typically coming to us to help them navigate through that. And when a company is going undergoing that kind of, I would say, a little bit more existential type of change, that's where design research can be really powerful because it really helps you to sort through the dark. A lot of the times our research, our research processes feel like we are in the dark and just trying to like find where the light can come in and then shedding as much light as possible and then making sense out of what we can see. And um, it can be really hard when like all you want is to get out of the cave and to see the light of day and to like see the landscape. But when you're in the cave, you really have to see like the whole cave. And I don't know, like there's just definitely like a sense of like desperation of like, get me out of here as soon as possible. And that can be super challenging, though typically when a client is coming to Sharehold, they've already committed to that kind of change and they're willing to uh, navigate with us. That being said, we do lose plenty of projects that are research related. Um, and those, those typically are much more, um, 
they're not really looking to understand something. They're looking to measure things that already exist. Like they're looking to do like market research. Um, they want to know like how many consumers do X, Y, Z. They're not looking to uncover new opportunities. And I would say that if you are a company who is not looking to uncover new opportunities and who is not constantly keeping on the pulse of your customers, you're going to lose out on your market in the very near future. I think that's like a, an interesting consideration, the sense of, of you know, the, there's the explicit sense of community of co-working spaces or membership or a uh, membership mm-hmm oriented organizations, but then there's a sense of community for products where it's not as formal of a structure of community. And so I'm curious, how do you approach community in these very different circumstances? Is there, is there a different way to it? How do you find like a common thread or something that's really important part of that, that community? Can you share a little bit more with us about that? Do you mean like, how do we work with such very different types of communities and different types of stakeholders and how does that all tie together? Yeah, uh, you can talk to that if you want. <laughs> more, more. Uh, I was meaning a kind of almost like a comparison and comparison or contrasting between these two types of communities and, you know, the, the, the values that are at the center of a different type of community yeah. and how, how you use that as a lens to, to drive innovation and, and engage them to right. achieve innovation, right? I think that some people perceive our work when they hear the word like, oh, we do community design. Uh, what they don't realize is that lens of community design can be applied to many different types of problems that you're solving. It's ultimately about empathizing and understanding uh, people and what it is that they need and then translating those needs into strategies and requirements and that lens can be taken from a co-working space from a membership program it also can be taken to a digital product we do quite a bit of um, research and discovery for digital products it also can be applied to the inside of an organization and of course each of those have like their different frameworks and um, their different types of thought leadership but ultimately the capability to understand what it is that people need and to take care of them. That's the same and universal across all those different types of community, customer, stakeholder facing types of engagements. Hmm. Are there any examples of companies doing a really great job at, at this that you feel like you can share with us, whether you've worked with them at Sharehold or that you see in the, in just like out in the market? Yeah, I mean, what's immediately coming to mind is some of our current work with the Hebrew Free Loan Society. The Hebrew Free Loan Society is an incredible nonprofit based here in New York that provides low-income New Yorkers with 0% interest loans. We are supporting them in scaling up their services to dramatically increase their impact over the next five years. And um, this is particularly important, particularly in light of covid Uh, They did introduce a loan specifically for COVID and saw a rapid increase in the number of applications. And their organization is primarily paper-based. They're a very um, old school type of organization and they need to rapidly scale. So they came to us looking for system design research to serve their team. We are specifically looking at what are the needs and requirements of the technology that this team needs within their internal products 
to increase their impact on their community. And one of the really cool light bulb moments that happened in our work with them is in the middle of our insight share back, one of the core stakeholders in our project, she like suddenly stopped her meeting and she was like, oh my gosh, this work, this technological work to support our team is going to have an incredible impact on our borrowers and our applicants and our local community in New York City. And we were like, yes, like that is absolutely the learning there that um, the work that you do to support your team also supports your customers and vice versa as well. These are like reciprocal mirrored relationships and that um, you need to be able to do both well. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's a really great example. And me being particularly interested in service design, this perks my ears because, <laughs> <laughs> um, because you know, a lot of times when you think about uh, the internal processes, you just think about uh, how efficiently you can get something done right? and, and you know, achieve your task or your goal yeah. or whatever it is. But a lot of times the way that you set up the technological infrastructure or the processes really inform the final output and the way that it's received by Exactly. Customer. Like in this project, when we were setting it up, we were specifically directed to only focus on internal needs. And in fact, I can remember when we were pitching this project to uh, Rabbi David Rosen, the executive director of the Hebrew Free Loan Society, he was like, I don't understand why shareholders would want to take on this project. Like it's like, it's an unsexy project. It's boring. It's like technological infrastructure. And I was like, no, this technological infrastructure is going to dramatically impact the way that your team operates and the way that your team collaborates. And therefore, it's going to dramatically enable you to better serve your community. And that is true across many of our organizations. In almost every single project now, we do both organizational research and community or customer research. And we find that the challenges that come up in the organizational research is often also true what's coming up in the community research as well. Like they're very much um, reciprocal of each other. And when you help one, you're helping the other. So, I mean, I think that's a really good point of what you do internally reflects, you know, it's how you do things, it's how you do everything, right? Yep, yep, totally. <laughs> so bringing it back to shareholds, you have been very explicit and intentional about uh the way that you are building sharehold from a culture and a practice perspective. Would you be open to sharing a little bit about you know, the thought that's gone into it? Some of the things you feel like are working, some of the things that you're, you're working on to, to, to improve and where you think there's potential. Like what is our internal culture like at sharehold? Yeah. Like how, like these principles and frameworks that you are, that you are helping other organizations implement and, uh, apply. Um, I know that you are doing a lot of that work internally as well. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I would love to hear more about uh, how you're doing that at Sharehold and, and what you think the result is. I will say that for anybody who is in a particular challenge, it is very hard to see your way out yourself. It's often easier to see it as an outsider. So of course, I find this work much easier to do for our clients than I do for our own team. Um, so 
sometimes it does feel like a case of the cobbler's shoes, but it is something that is very important to our team that we embody our values. And it's something that we are actively practicing and continuously iterating upon. Um, a few examples of that is um, we recently rejected a project as a team. It was with a, um, I don't want to give away too much about what this project was, though it was an international project for a really exciting opportunity with a lot of uh, PR and buzz around it for a really incredible private company that was funded by a government that we had, that we felt had questionable values. And um, it was really challenging as a team to sort through whether or not to move forward in the conversation with this company. Immediately, several people on our team like raised their hands and were like, I have concerns about this. Here's XYZ article. Uh, here's like this statistic. Um, I don't feel that this aligns with our values. It's not going to reflect well on our brand. Uh, and then there was also the other side of the of the coin where it's like, actually, this effort that this company is undertaking is really admirable. And if it is successful, it will dramatically improve the quality of life for many people. And it will be an incredible case study, not just for us, but like for the world and in demonstrating what the future potential could be and what cultural change looks like. Ultimately, we decided to reject the project. Um, and the reason why we rejected it was one, it was not supported by our team. Our team did not want to work on it. And I was going to have to hire new people to just like source the projects, which didn't feel good. But two, um, while there was a lot of really good intention there, it wasn't yet proven. And we did not yet see any external markers of success to make us feel comfortable that the words that they were using to describe their values and the future they wanted to create was actually coming into fruition. And that was self-taught for me. Like it was a project I really wanted to work on. And I think it could have been really exciting and have a huge impact. But ultimately, we decided that it just didn't, there wasn't yet a clear enough demonstration of alignment with our values. And that was hard. That's tough. Um, yeah, I, I don't have regrets, but yeah. we'll see what happens in a couple of years. <laughs> I mean, and how rare is it for an organization, an agency period to decide democratically about the projects they take on? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it was a democratic process. Um, technically, like, I could make that decision unilaterally, but that would not feel good for me or for our team, and I think would really erode trust. Hmm. Um, so I think it's really important, even if you do have the power to make those decisions unilaterally, that you listen and um, that you take into account different perspectives and ultimately are making a decision on behalf of the group, not like in spite of the group. Hmm. I mean, it's a perfect example of putting into action the values you have. That's the definition of shareholder, right? They have, yes, 100%. They have a seat at the table and you listen to it. Yeah. And another thing that we did as a team last year is, um, you know, we worked on this one project where things just got really intense for a bit. Um, you know, on our team, we tend to have people um, who are a little bit more creative, and then we have people who are a little bit more linear. And sometimes um, those two work styles can be a little bit conflicting. And we had like a major clash on our team when we had like a big deliverable due on a tight timeline, and people were just like not working together well. 
and um it really came to a head there was like tears people were fighting it was very distressing and ultimately you know we got through it and after that project was over we sat down as a team and we created what we called the calm conflict code and this was a um sort of like a mindset and a process that we now use in our team to resolve conflict. Um, and it was really interesting because even the way that in which we developed the Calm Conflict Code, it was very collaborative. It started out where I like wrote down a few key points that aligned with our values and then I took it back to our team. And they were like, no, we disagree with this. In fact, like uh, this here about like resolving, this isn't actually a thing. and um, we completely rewrote it based on that conversation to make it focus on um, an approach to conflict rather than resolving conflict. And we decided as a team that, you know, it, it's okay if we're in conflict as long as that we are able to navigate it together. Wow, that's really interesting. The Just the intentionality of no, it's not conflict that is the problem. It's how we are addressing it. Exactly. Is so huge. It's such an insight. Yeah. And you don't you don't get that without stopping and being intentional and seeing trends and tendencies and things like, you know, you just a lot of times you just react to whatever the thing that's uncomfortable and seems undesirable. When actually conflict is actually a really construct can be a very constructive it thing. It can be. Conflict can be very powerful. In fact, people could argue that progress is not possible without conflict. Like you need to you need to work through the conflict in order to progress forward and develop better solutions. And that's part of the reason why diversity is such a powerful asset in any kind of team. Yeah, that's amazing. Except for like, you know, I think that's actually really interesting because that's an example of of how conflict cannot necessarily be as explicit in conflict. So that reframes conflict from some sort of confrontational thing to just different perspectives. Tension of perspective <laughs> or priority or that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Totally. Something a lot more subtle. Yeah. yeah the the reframing of it, I think, is really important. Yeah. And then, of course, we're um, aiming to embody our name, shareholds, and we'll be implementing profit sharing with our team this year. TBD and what that looks like, but we'll we'll navigate it as a team and figure it out. That's really exciting. Are you guys kind of exploring that structure together, or how are you going about doing that? Um, right now, we're just sort of earmarking interesting stories that we're hearing. So, for example, the other day, I was listening to the Goop podcast, which is actually a fantastic business podcast. I, I didn't um, <laughs> expect it to be something that I'd be into, but there's a lot of really interesting business stories. And I did a recent interview with Eileen Fisher. And I learned that Eileen Fisher shares 40% of their profits every year with their team. And apparently they have a really strong track record of retention. They have, they've had barely any turnover over the past like 30 years or something to that effect. And I thought that was really cool. And of course, we've been paying attention to a lot of new co-ops that are opening. That sounds really fun. Just to kind of start to wrap up is one of the last one of the last questions or last couple of questions. I think we've talked a lot about the trajectory of community up into the uh, from the past up until mm-hmm. today, uh, and clearly COVID is changing everything. So yeah. I don't know whether you sense make around what some of the changes are, but you know, where did you think community? And, and innovation via people was going? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're going to see two different types of camps emerge. And I do have a strong sense of which camp will win. Um, 
obviously there's a significant amount of structural and systemic change change happening in real time right now. Um, We are at this place where our government structure is changing in real time. We are, I just saw that there was a bill introduced to Congress to, uh, to guarantee the salaries for all workers, very similar to what's currently happening in Europe. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. But also I could not have imagined that even being, a a politically feasible conversation to be having in our government today. Mm. And I think that kind of a conversation is, is happening now. Like everything that we thought was not feasible a year ago is now viable. And that is a really exciting opportunity. And I think in response to that, and of course, like the way that that correlates to business is that there's like a major shift in power dynamics where uh, we're suddenly questioning, how do we take care of our employees Uh, what does it mean to do right by our customers? How do we caretake for the environment? What is our long-term plan for sustainability? How do we make decisions for the long-term of our business while still being accountable to our immediate shareholders in like the more literal sense? Uh, And that's a really exciting opportunity. And I think that we're going to see some companies that really rein it in and they're like tightening control and like doubling down on profit margins And I think that we're going to see other companies that are much more expansive and they embrace that opportunity for change. And those are the companies that are really going to knock it out of the park. Like in our work with the Hebrew Free Loan Society, one thing that has really impressed me is that they went from being an all paper business to suddenly overnight being a digital business. And the way that they embrace that, it just gave me so much confidence in their ability to significantly 5X their impact over the next few years. I was like, wow, like you are really taking on this opportunity for change and you're going for it. And um, I think we're going to see many, many shifts like that where companies are truly embracing what it means to exist in this new market and how they can better serve their customers in light of that. Um, Like, for example, I was really impressed with the layoffs that Airbnb did. I know many people have been talking about that. The way in which they did that was so humane. They really took care of their employees. And of course, they're in the fortunate position where they have a significant amount of investment in cash on hand, so they can take care of their employees that way. But it really set the bar of like, how is it that we want to do business going forward? And I think we're going to see a dramatic shift towards being much more inclusive with shareholders. And of course, we saw the article in the New York Times at the Business Roundtable had committed to uh, a much more inclusive set of stakeholders beyond simply business as usual and shareholder primacy. And I think we're going to see that move into action. I hope that all trends point in the direction of the new way of doing things. And, uh, you know, I think there's not many, many resources that we have uh, to shine a light and guide us through that as, as mm-hmm. our community base and our customers. Uh, I think that's the only way that people are going to be able to really shift and adapt uh, and be relevant. So, yeah, they need to really focus on what people need right now. To wrap, uh, for people that are curious to start applying some of these concepts or digging in a little bit more, do you have any resources that you would recommend people check out um, if they're thinking about people-led innovation and design? Yeah. Um One book that I just started reading that I find is, I'm like gobbling it up. I'm reading like whole chapters of it every single day is Together by Dr. Vivek Murthy. 
He is the former U.S. Um, general surgeon, and he wrote this really fantastic book about loneliness and particularly how our culture and business practices have shaped the loneliness epidemic. Um, I think that's a really interesting food for thought. I'm also really excited about the book coming out from our collaborator, Carrie Melissa Jones. Her new book is called Building Brand Communities, and it comes out very soon. And I think that's going to be a fantastic resource for folks who are looking to get started in building a community. Um, in terms of people who are interested in research, I know you and I, Lauren, like we both really advocate for and love research. Again, like I feel that research is one of the most fundamental competencies and capabilities that a company can develop right now. I highly recommend Erica Hall's Just Enough Research. This is a really great resource for getting started in your research practice. And then for like bringing it back to the organization, Brene Brown is always um, a bright light and um, all of her books are wonderful, especially love her new podcast. Oh, I haven't heard it yet, but I've been following her on Instagram and she's great. She's always great. (laughs) (laughs) Her new podcast is really good. I'll check it out. Well, I think those recommendations were phenomenal. Um, I myself have recommended and given copies of Just Enough Research by Erica Hall to a number of people. Oh, good. With that, I think we'll close. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining me and having this conversation and sharing your perspective and experience with people to help drive progress uh, across organizations and industries. Uh, Thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Lauren. I appreciate your dedication to bringing values into your work. Thanks for listening to Greater Than. Show notes are available on the podcast page on our website, wearewhole.co. That's wearewhole.co. If you enjoyed this conversation, leave a review where you stream your podcast and share it with others who might like it too. 